If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling? The freedom? How the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is, driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One. For the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's episode, the latest in our Everything You Wanted to Know series, we'll be discussing one of the key events of the Cold War, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Our expert is Professor Mark White from Queen Mary University of London. And putting the questions to him was our editor, Rob Attar. So today I'm joined by Professor Mark White, who is a historian based at Queen Mary University of London. He's an expert on the American presidency in the Cold War era, And his specialisms include John F. Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. And indeed, he's written three histories of the crisis, including the book Missiles in Cuba. Now, as with all of these episodes, the questions I'm going to be asking Mark are taken from popular internet search queries, as well as some that you've submitted on our various social media platforms. And so let's begin at the beginning with one of the internet search queries, which is, What were the causes of the Cuban Missile Crisis? Thanks, Rob. It's a really interesting question. um, And our understanding of that issue has changed because I'd say for the first quarter century or so after the Cuban Missile Crisis, the consensus among scholars and also the public at large was that there really wasn't a debate over this. The causes were obvious. It was Soviet aggression, Soviet duplicity, Uh, The Russian leader Nikita Khrushchev in the spring of 1962 uh, made the decision to deploy nuclear missiles in Cuba, 90 miles from the coast of Florida, from the coast of the United States. And this clearly is what caused the Cuban Missile Crisis. But from the late 1980s onwards, some historians began to challenge that view and to consider why Khrushchev made that decision. And what some historians have argued is that Khrushchev decided to deploy nuclear missiles in Cuba in response to what Kennedy had done. So it's a sequential issue. And in particular, what some historians have emphasised is um, 
the fact that John F. Kennedy, early in his presidency, carried out uh, a policy of marked aggression towards Fidel Castro and basically tried to overthrow him, notably at the uh, at the Bay of Pigs in April 1961, and also with Operation Mongoose. There were also U.S. assassination attempts. And so Khrushchev had always maintained that the main reason why he had put missiles in Cuba was to deter uh, a U.S. invasion of Cuba, authorised by Kennedy, that he regarded it as, as inevitable. And so from the late 1980s onwards, some historians began to find that argument believable. Um, now, it's a complex issue. So, for example, one could argue Khrushchev could have just deployed r- Russian troops in Cuba without deploying nuclear weapons, and that would have been enough to deter a US attack. Um, but what some people feel is that had Kennedy not carried out a policy of marked aggression towards Fidel Castro and also had not carried out the biggest peacetime increase in US military spending in history up to that point, Khrushchev would not have put nuclear missiles in Cuba and therefore there would not have been a Cuban missile crisis. So it's it's a very debatable point now. And then coming on to another search query, which is essentially what were the key events of the crisis itself? So uh, in the spring of 1962, the Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev decided to deploy nuclear missiles uh, in Cuba. The story goes that he was strolling along the Black Sea coast with his defence minister, Malinovsky. And Malinovsky pointed out, well, you know, just across the horizon there, across the Black Sea in Turkey, the US has nuclear missiles, Jupiter missiles, that can strike Soviet citizens. And Khrushchev apparently responded by saying... Uh, something to the effect, well, maybe we can give the US a taste of its own medicine by putting missiles in Cuba. So it seems that was the juncture, spring 1962, when Khrushchev decides to put nuclear missiles in Cuba. Then, during the summer and early autumn of 1962, he carries out what is called Operation Anadia. This was the operation to deploy nuclear missiles, but also conventional weapons and also troops in Cuba. Now, during the late summer and early autumn, the US knew this was going on. Um, The press was reporting on it. Congress was debating it. Kennedy was having to discuss the issue at press conferences. But Kennedy's assumption, and indeed of his whole administration, was that no nuclear missiles were going in. Conventional weapons, troops, but no nuclear. And indeed, no nuclear missiles did go in until September. On the 14th of October, the CIA, 14th of October 1962, the CIA sent over uh, uh, a reconnaissance plane, spy plane, that took detailed photographic evidence. That evidence was brought back to CIA headquarters, interpreted, and what it established was that Soviet nuclear missiles were in Cuba. John Kennedy was lying in bed on the morning of Tuesday the 16th of October, in the White House, and his national security advisor, McGeorge Bundy, informed him uh, about what the CIA had established. There were nuclear missiles in Cuba. That, the morning of Tuesday, 16th of October, 62, is the start of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So the question for John Kennedy is, how do I respond? What do I do about this? And he made two key decisions right from the start. One was to keep it secret, to not tell Congress, to not tell uh, the media, to not tell the world. What he was concerned about was that if he did that, whilst he was making his mind on how to respond, that would give Khrushchev the initiative, and he could therefore take some 
um, counteraction, maybe in Berlin, maybe in Turkey. Uh, So he keeps it secret. The second thing is, is he sets up a special committee, which is known as the XCOM group, basically senior foreign and defence officials who would give him advice during the crisis. The XCOM committee would meet every day, often more than once, and advise him on how to handle it. Um, So the Cuban Missile Crisis divides into two. The first week, which is the secret private phase of the Cuban Missile Crisis, where Kennedy is mulling over how to respond with his advisors. Now, at the start of the Cuban Missile Crisis, Kennedy himself, John Kennedy himself, but also most of his advisors, believe that he would have to respond by military action with an airstrike. And um, uh, that what the Soviets had done was reprehensible, and this was the appropriate response. But during the course of that week... Um, a debate emerged in the XCOM group between those who supported the airstrike and those who supported a naval blockade. Establish a US naval blockade around Cuba. This would stop the Russians sending in more missiles. It wouldn't take out the missiles that were already there, but at least it would stop them from sending in more missiles and it would buy some time to negotiate a settlement, hopefully. And John Kennedy came to support that view. Um, And on the evening of the 22nd of October... 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, he delivered a speech uh, on television and by radio to the American people, uh, but in effect to the world, in which he said two things. One, I need to let you know that there are Russian missiles in Cuba. Two, I am responding by establishing a naval blockade. So that's it. That's the end of the first week of the Cuban Missile Crisis. At that moment, the Cuban Missile Crisis becomes a public affair. So the second week of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which lasts from that point on the evening of the 22nd till the morning of the 28th, is when the Cuban Missile Crisis is public knowledge, world knowledge, and the world teeters on the brink of nuclear war with that fear, with that concern. During that second week of the crisis, there are a number of different strands to it. One is the XCOM meetings... Uh, continue. So Kennedy continues to get advice from the XCOM uh, group. Secondly, there's secret diplomacy going on. Uh, So, for example, uh, Bobby Kennedy meets on a couple of occasions with the Soviet ambassador in in Washington, Debrinin, and on the 23rd and on the 27th of October. Thirdly, there is a correspondence going on between Kennedy and Khrushchev where they send letters to each other and basically, for the early days of the second week, just accuse the other of causing this crisis and not offering any kind of settlement. A key moment is on the morning of the 24th because once Kennedy decides to establish the blockade, the big issue is, will the Russians respect it? Will Khrushchev respect it? And the morning of the 24th, is a moment of incredibly high drama because Kennedy is sitting around with his top advisers. When the news comes in that uh, two Soviet ships and also a submarine are approaching the blockade line, the question is, will they stop, head back to Russia, or will they try and force through the line? If it's the latter, if they try and force through the line, you're then talking about a military engagement on the seas between American forces and Soviet forces. You're talking about potentially World War III. And at the very last minute, the news comes through that the Soviet ships had stopped dead in the water. And this is the moment, the famous moment, when the Secretary of State, Dean Rusk, turned to McGeorge Bundy, who's the National Security Advisor, and said, we're eyeball to eyeball. And I think the other fellow just blinked. The ships turn around and um, head back to the Soviet Union. So at that point, Kennedy knew the blockade had been effective in the sense that the Soviets wouldn't send in any more missiles. That still left the question of how do you get the missiles that are already there? A turning point is a remarkable 
personal, very emotional letter sent by Khrushchev to Kennedy on the, on the 26th of October, the evening of the 26th, in which he offers a deal. He says to Kennedy, if you promise not to invade Cuba, I will take the missiles out of Cuba. Great. It looked like a, a settlement of the crisis was in sight. But what muddied the, the waters was, the, was when, in the following morning, the morning of the 27th, a second letter arrived from Khrushchev before Kennedy had been able to respond to the first, much more formal in tone and changing the terms of the settlement. Khrushchev now said, you're going to have to promise not to invade Cuba and also remove your missiles, US missiles from Turkey, the Jupiter missiles from Turkey. This impaled Kennedy on the horns of a dilemma. How do I respond to these two different letters? And it remains an enigmatic question. Why did Khrushchev do this? Why did he send two different letters with two different offers uh, within a matter of hours, was it a case of hardliners in the Kremlin imposing themselves on him and compelling him to send that second letter? That seems unlikely. Nevertheless, the question for Kennedy was how to respond. And famously, he decided to respond in the end by responding to the first letter. So he responds later on the 27th of October by saying to Khrushchev, um, loved your letter the 26th, let's settle the crisis on that basis. I'll promise not to invade Cuba, you'll take the missiles out. However, to increase the likelihood of Soviet acceptance, he sent Bobby Kennedy to speak to the Soviet ambassador de Brinen that evening. And what Bobby Kennedy told de Brinen, off the record really, was in addition, we will remove our missiles from Turkey. But this has to remain a secret part of the settlement. If you divulge this to the press, to the world, the deal is off. What Bobby Kennedy also emphasised to de Brinen was how close they were to war, that there was tremendous pressure on John Kennedy to carry out military action. So, um, you know, Kennedy and his advisers go to bed that night feeling that perhaps World War III is around the corner. I mean, I think this was the big question. What if Khrushchev had come back to Kennedy and said, that's all fine, but the deal on the Jupiters, removing the missiles from Turkey, has to be public, not private. Would Kennedy have gone to war? Uh, on the basis that that part of the deal had to remain secret? We don't know. But the following morning, the morning of the 28th, a letter came from Khrushchev saying that he accepted Kennedy's offer. And that was it. The Cuban Missile Crisis was over in the morning of the 28th. It had lasted 13 days. Of course, there were still loose ends to tie up, but basically that was it. Um, And the most dangerous crisis of the Cold War epoch was over. Well, Mark, that was a really, really fantastic summary of the crisis. And so coming on from that, we had a question actually that really responds to your last point from Chris Riley on Instagram, who said, was this the closest that the Cold War got to getting hot? I think so. I mean, that's its reputation in history as the most dangerous moment of the Cold War, the closest we've come to World War Three, And I think that's an entirely appropriate point of view, because... The thing to remember about the Soviet deployment in Cuba, as I said earlier, was that it, 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 it involved nuclear missiles and conventional weapons, but it also involved troops. There were more than 40,000 Russian troops on the island at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it is the case that the start of the missile crisis, I mean, it's very interesting if you look at the evidence that we have, because this is, this is one of the interesting things about the Cuban Missile Crisis, that Kennedy taped the meetings, those XCOM meetings, he had a little button under his desk and he could press it and it activated a recording device. We have verbatim accounts of these XCOM meetings and a lot of those records were declassified in the 1990s 
the the and so we have a very precise understanding of um you know what kennedy said and what he intended to do and if you look at what kennedy said on the first day of the cuban missile crisis in the excom group uh, on the 16th of october his view was unequivocal he was going to respond militarily he was going to respond with an airstrike he, he made this clear uh at various times during the two XCOM meetings on the 16th of October. And most of his advisers agreed with that point of view. So let's play out the scenario that Kennedy decides to go with what his initial inclination was, which is with an airstrike on Cuba to destroy the missile sites, uh, the Soviet missile sites. If he does that, he's not only going to potentially destroy some missiles, he's also going to kill Russian troops. Khrushchev's going to have to respond somewhere as a matter of credibility, um, with a nuclear strike, possibly, move on West Berlin, possibly. But had Kennedy gone with the airstrike, Russian troops would have been killed and that would, it would seem likely that war would ensue. Yes, I think this is, this is the closest we've come to World War Three. And then on a related note, we had a question from Christina Levinson on Twitter who wanted to know, did people understand how close the world came to nuclear war? Yes, Um so once John Kennedy gives his speech to the nation on the evening of the 22nd of October 1962, telling the American people there were, there were Soviet missiles in Cuba and he was responding with the blockade, um, it was public knowledge. And there was a poll taken the following day to gauge American public opinion in response to Kennedy's speech and it said that one in five Americans thought that World War III would be a consequence or would follow on from Kennedy's establishment of the blockade. People understood the gravity of the situation and elsewhere in the world, um, and a lot of people thought it would lead to war. OK, and so we had quite a specific question on Instagram from LK Whitehead, who wrote, were the Green Berets really suited up and sitting at Fort Bragg waiting for the signal to invade? Well... An interesting part of the history of all of this is what happens before the Cuban Missile Crisis. And one of the things that had happened before the Cuban Missile Crisis was that the Kennedy administration developed contingency plans to attack Cuba. The origins of this planning go back to the Eisenhower years, but those plans were updated during the Kennedy presidency. Now, it's not easy to gauge the significance of them the uh, US has contingency plans for everything. Uh, I, th I think as one historian once put it, you know, they, they probably has contingency plans for, you know, what would we do if we invade Canada? And of course, these things are not likely to happen. But in this case, the plans seemed serious. And there's a quite brilliant article written back in 1990 by a historian called James Hirschberg, in which he uh, presented evidence that we hadn't seen before on whether Kennedy was seriously planning to attack Cuba even before the Cuban Missile Crisis started. And as part of this, there were practice military operations where the US military staged military operations in the Caribbean. And uh, there's one um, occasion, a possibly infamous occasion, where the US military announced that it was staging a practice military operation in the Caribbean to storm an island. And the aim of this uh, practice operation was to liberate the island from a fictional dictator called Ortsak, O-R-T-S-A-C. Read that backwards 
and you'll know, you'll know who the tracks operation was aimed at. Um, so the US had been preparing all these plans uh, to carry out an airstrike on Cuba, uh, invade Cuba, blockade Cuba, ha- had actually carried out practice operations. So once the Cuban Missile Crisis starts, the US military is very well prepared to carry out military action. Indeed, it does make me think whether one reason why Kennedy's and, and his advisers were inclined at the start of the missile crisis to plump for military action was because the military preparations before the missile crisis for such action had been so extensive. And in, in the first day of the Cuban Missile Crisis and the XCOM meetings, there is talk about, you know, um, how well prepared are we to carry out an attack now? And officials saying we're very well prepared, we're ready to go. Well, the missile crisis has just started. Uh, why is the US military already ready to go? Well, they're, they're already ready to go because of the pre-missile crisis preparations. And so, yeah, during the missile crisis, um, the US military prepares and is authorised by Kennedy and the Secretary of Defence, Robert McNamara, to prepare for an attack. So uh, southern Florida is reinforced militarily. The US military base on Cuban soil at Guantanamo uh, is fortified, strengthened. US destroyers, four US destroyers, are placed between Florida and between Cuba. Uh, The Secretary of Defence, Robert McNamara, on the 20th of October... Uh, authorises four tactical air squadrons to be ready to carry out an airstrike. And then, um, I think it's on the morning of the 24th of October, the uh, US military moves to DEFCON 2. That's the defence readiness condition, the readiness of the military to go to war. DEFCON 2 is the closest you can be to going to war. DEFCON 1 is war. So the US military moved to DEFCON 2 during the crisis. So yes, the, the military was absolutely ready to carry out uh, an airstrike, other military action against Cuba, and Kennedy had authorised them to do so. And then sticking with Kennedy, we had a question from, I'm sorry if I've pronounced the name wrong, but Lanny or Laney Blackman, who is an Australian high school teacher on Twitter, and she asked, there are different views out there on how well JFK led during the crisis. To what extent did he make the key decisions and lead XCOM, and who else is important? He certainly made the key decisions. He's president of the United States. He solicits advice from his senior officials. Uh, that in, uh, and they included, notably, his brother, Bobby Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, who was attorney general. But from the spring of 1961 onwards, after the Bay of Pigs invasion, was given a major position on foreign policy issues as well, including Cuba. And there are other senior officials as well that Kennedy listens to. So he listens to advice. His, his, his advisors give him options, but he certainly makes the key decisions. My own view is that he handled the crisis extremely well. And I think if you look at the Kennedy presidency in the round... One of the interesting themes to me is the distinction between Kennedy's ability as a crisis manager on the one hand and his ability to craft policy that was effective in the long term on the other. Um, That is to say that if you look at the, the positives of 
the Kennedy presidency, they seem to relate in the main to crisis management. You have a successful handling of the Berlin crisis in 1961, defending West Berlin. You have a successful handling of the Cuban Missile Crisis in 62, getting the missiles out of Cuba without going to war. You have his handling of periodic civil rights crises, such as the one in Birmingham, Alabama in the spring of 1963. It just seemed to suit him temperamentally. He remained cool under pressure. Uh, you could even see this in the 1960 presidential campaign with the television debates with Nixon, where famously in the first one, he, you know, comprehensively defeated Nixon, who was very able, intelligent, regarded as effective on television. He seemed to handle pressure well, and he seemed to be a good crisis manager. His ability in terms of shaping policy with an eye to the long term on the other is more debatable. For example, Vietnam, where he substantially escalated US involvement, and that played a major role in moving the the US closer to that disastrous war there, although he never went to war himself. So I think his handling of the Cuban Missile Crisis relates to his overall presidential record. Now, the one area of his leadership during the crisis which was not impressive was that original reaction when he believed he would have to respond militarily. I think, although he generally kept his cool, I think he was angry. I think he felt that Khrushchev had deceived him, had lied to him, had stabbed him in the back. It is true that Khrushchev and his advisers had said during the autumn they would not put nuclear missiles in Cuba. So Kennedy felt, well, I've been lied to. And he was right, he had been. So his initial response was intemperate and too bellicose, too militaristic. But one has to praise him for keeping an open mind. He he kept an open mind, he listened to the options, and... I'd say as early as two days later, uh, by the 18th of October, he's basically decided he's going to go for the blockade because the military option was too dangerous. Um, And by the 20th of October, he's unequivocally decided he's going to do that, that he will go for the blockade, which he then announces to the American people. You also have to credit him for standing up to the military, for standing up to the generals, because they were gung-ho. They absolutely wanted to go to war and to carry out military action against Cuba. If you watch Oliver Stone's 1991 film, JFK, um, the historical accuracy of it is debatable in all sorts of ways. But one theme in that film which is credible is the tension between Kennedy on the one hand and his generals on the other. And yeah, basically throughout his presidency, Kennedy came to feel more and more that the generals tended to look at the world in too simplistic a way. They just looked at it in militaristic terms. They never tended to factor in the political issues, concerning issues. And uh, so he, he, ha- he, he did have to stand up to his generals. There's, there's one extraordinary meeting where he's literally doing that. Um, and um, it's clear they think that Kennedy is being weak-kneed and Kennedy feels that they are being too bellicose. So one has to credit him for his guts in standing up to the generals. And for the diplomatic skill he showed in the second week of the crisis. And I think if you look at the evidence, to me, this is one of the interesting things with the missile crisis is I think it's it's, it's useful to think of it uh, in an educative sense. I mean, how it changes Kennedy. It's one thing to understand, uh, as you or I do or anyone does, that nuclear war is a possibility in a theoretical abstract sense. But to actually live through this incredibly intense uh, crisis, the Cuban Missile Crisis for two weeks, Um, when you and one other guy on the other side of the world are responsible uh, as to whether there's going to be a nuclear war. I think it left him with a kind of visceral, a visceral, deeper 
uh, understanding of the dangers of the nuclear age. And so I think as the crisis goes on, he becomes more and more determined to end it diplomatically and to end it peacefully. And um, so I think the successful settlement, the peaceful resolution of the crisis is due in part to that evolving concern that Kennedy has about the dangers of the nuclear age. And you can also see that uh, when you look at what Kennedy and also Khrushchev do after the missile crisis. So I would give Kennedy very high marks for his handling of the Cuban missile crisis. It's the great challenge of his presidency. I know it's of much shorter duration uh, than, say, the Civil War for Abraham Lincoln or the Great Depression for Franklin Roosevelt. But in terms of its transcendent importance... Is there going to be World War Three? Is there going to be nuclear war? It's the great foreign policy challenge of his uh, presidency. And I, w- I would give him... Uh, I mean, obviously, when Kennedy was assassinated, there was this incredible sense of loss and this Camelot view of his presidency developed, which was that he had been a great president. Um, the extent to which that is credible is debatable, but regardless of that, I would give him very high marks for his handling of the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's a very major achievement, an important achievement. Sticking with the Kennedy family, Melissa Joanna on Facebook wanted to know, was Bobby Kennedy really the integral, cool-headed influence who saved the day? It's a really good question. Um, our initial view of this was that Robert Kennedy was the hero of the Cuban Missile Crisis in many ways, that he did save the day. And the reason we thought this was because this is what Bobby Kennedy himself told us. Um, Bobby Kennedy, after the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, left the administration of Lyndon Johnson. He ran for uh, a Senate seat for New York State in the autumn of 1964 and won. So from 1965 onwards, he's a senator for New York State. And in 1968, he runs for the presidency. Um, runs for the Democratic presidential nomination, but is assassinated in California in June 1968. Before he had done that, he had begun writing a little history of the Cuban Missile Crisis with the help of Theodore Sorensen, JFK's great speechwriter. The book was published posthumously after Robert Kennedy's death as 13 Days. And for many, many years, it was a key source for Cuban Missile Crisis historians because they didn't have a lot of other evidence And Bobby Kennedy does basically portray himself as the hero of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And two things in particular. He portrayed himself as the ex-com official who stood up to the hawks who wanted John Kennedy to carry out military action. And what he said in his book, 13 Days, was I was the one who stood up to them. He gives a very famous account of how he stood up to Dean Acheson, who had been Harry Truman's Secretary of State, Um, in the late 1940s, early 1950s, a formidable, imposing figure, an establishment figure regarded as a foreign policy expert. Dean Acheson was brought in as an ad hoc advisor during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and he made the case forcibly for military action that John Kennedy had to carry out an airstrike. And Robert Kennedy recounted how he had stood up to Dean Acheson and made a moralistic case. You know, the United States is not that sort of nation. And this famous analogy we are not going to carry out a Pearl Harbor. We are not going to do to the world and to Cuba what Japan did to Pearl Harbor in 1941. And that this argument proved persuasive and his brother went with the the blockade. And then the other thing he credited himself with was, was that question of how to respond to Khrushchev's two different letters on the 26th and the 27th of October at the climax of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So Khrushchev's first letter saying... um, 
I'll take the missiles out if the United States promises not to invade. But then he sends the second letter on the 27th saying um, the US will have to promise not to invade Cuba and remove the missiles from Turkey. How do you respond to those two letters? Well, in his book, 13 Days, Robert Kennedy said, I was the one who came up with this brilliant idea of just responding to the first letter, of getting my brother to send a letter to Khrushchev saying, I liked your first letter of the 26th. Uh, and uh, yes, we'll promise not to invade Cuba. You take the missiles out. Um, so, Robert Kennedy is important because he's JFK's closest advisor. I mean, there is a kind of clannish, dynastic aspect to John Kennedy's presidency. He trusted his brother more than anyone else because he was family. So, Bobby Kennedy had more influence than any other advisor. But, Bobby Kennedy had exaggerated his own contribution in his memoir, 13 Days. Uh, He offered a simplistic view. He didn't credit other officials with their contribution. So in terms of the first week of the crisis, what Bobby Kennedy didn't say, um, I think this is perhaps isn't generally known, what he didn't say is that on the first day of the crisis, the 16th, not only did he not support a blockade at that point in time, He supported military action, Um, but not just military action. He supported the super hawk position, which was an invasion. With the military options, there were different options. One was, you know, a US military strike on Soviet missile sites. One was a broader uh, US military uh, airstrike. But the other military option, the most hawkish one, the most aggressive one, the most dangerous one, was a full-scale invasion. There is clear evidence that Bobby Kennedy supported the superhawk position. His brother was for an airstrike on the 16th, but he, Bobby Kennedy, was for the superhawk position, an invasion. He doesn't mention that in 13 days. What is also the case is he was not the official who came up with the idea of the blockade. That was Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defence. I think this is important, this is worth noting, because Robert McNamara is a sort of infamous figure in history because many people see him as really the architect behind the war in Vietnam. Lyndon Johnson's Secretary of Defence, who pushed Lyndon Johnson to go to war in 1965, which turned out to be a disaster. Well, if one criticises him for that, and one should, one should also credit him for this massive contribution during the Cuban Missile Crisis. He was the one who came up with the idea of the blockade as an independent course of action separate from any military options. Um... And also, there were other officials who came up with the powerful, famous Pearl Harbor comparison. Other officials, including State Department official George Ball. So what Bobby Kennedy did later in that first week is he took the other arguments used by others and used them himself. Yes, I now support a blockade. Yes, I think an airstrike would be uh, like a Pearl Harbor. It's unacceptable. So he exaggerated his contribution. His contribution was important. He marginalised, slighted the contributions of others. Also, this question of how, to, at, the, at the key moment in the missile crisis, how do you respond to Khrushchev's two different letters on the 26th and the 27th? Now, I remember, this is back in the 1990s, when I was doing my research on my uh, first two books on the Cuban Missile Crisis. I remember when I first looked at the declassified transcript for the first XCOM meeting, the, the, the morning meeting on the 27th of October. Now, what I knew was what Robert Kennedy had said in 13 days, that he had come up with this brilliant idea, ignore Khrushchev's second letter, respond to his first letter. And so I remember reading the the declassified transcripts. So, so this is the meeting that John Kennedy had secretly recorded and the record had been released. Um, but I remember when I, when I read it, 
just waiting for Bobby Kennedy to come in saying, well, why don't we just respond to the first letter? And it didn't happen. And then there were all these other officials, uh, Theodore Sorensen, JFK speechwriter, McGeorge Bundy, National Security Advisor, uh, if I remember rightly, uh, and other officials who all said, um, well, why don't we just respond to his first letter, ignore the second letter? And then pages, pages, pages later into the transcript, Bobby Kennedy suddenly says, you know what, why don't we respond to the first letter? The basic plan that worked and ended the crisis, he did not come up with. Other officials did. He lent his support to it, and that was helpful because his brother listened to Bobby Kennedy. So his role was important. Um, And then you have his role as a secret diplomat during the second week of the crisis where he's meeting with the Soviet ambassador, De Bruyne. So his, his, his role is very important. Uh, and he plays an important role in the rest of John Kennedy's presidency as well, for example, on civil rights. But he exaggerated his own achievements. And I'll just make this one other point on this, which is the other thing which he doesn't talk about um, in, th- uh, in 13 days, is Operation Mongoose. When the Bay of Pigs invasion, the CIA operation to get rid of Castro in April 61 fails, the question for the Kennedy administration is what do we do about Castro now? What John Kennedy basically de- decided was to continue to try and get rid of Castro, to overthrow him. The centrepiece of this was Operation Mongoose, which was started in November 1961. It was the biggest CIA operation in history up to that point, and the aim of it was to overthrow Castro. Bobby Kennedy was one of the two leading US officials in Operation Mongoose. He played a leading role in Operation Mongoose uh, to get rid of Castro. And he actually said, Bobby Kennedy, the number one objective of our administration, this was privately, this wasn't public. The number one objective of the Kennedy administration is to overthrow Fidel Castro. Not education, not healthcare, not civil rights, but getting rid of Castro. So that's the other thing he doesn't talk about in 13 days, his very, very hardline role in terms of policy towards Cuba before the missile crisis. It's a very good question. And we had a couple of questions also on the Soviet angle. And firstly, we had one from Paul Day on Facebook, And he just really wanted to know what was the Soviet perspective on the Cuban Missile Crisis. So the basic decision to send nuclear missiles to Cuba was made in the spring of 1962 by Nikita Khrushchev. And it was the case that in the West, for many years afterwards, and at the time, uh, it was just regarded as a reckless, aggressive decision that brought the world to the precipice of nuclear war. Um, I think we now have a much more nuanced understanding of why the Soviets put nuclear missiles in Cuba. And it does seem to have been the case that part of the reason was that it was a response to Kennedy's uh, aggressive policies towards Castro. Um, You know, the way that Khrushchev looked at things was that Kennedy had embarked on a relentless campaign to overthrow Castro. He tried to overthrow Castro at the Bay of Pigs. Um, Operation Mongoose was launched in November, late uh, 61, November 61. Um, My understanding is that the Soviets may not have known the name, but they knew that the operation was basically underway, aimed at getting rid of Castro. In early 62, the US imposed economic sanctions on Cuba to kind of economically strangle Cuba and also diplomatically isolated Cuba by arranging Cuba to be ejected from the Organization of American States. 
Also in spring 1962, the US is carrying out practice and military operations in the Caribbean. That seemed threatening towards Cuba. So I think Khrushchev decides to put missiles in Cuba in response to Kennedy's policies towards Castro. Um, And, you know, during this era, if, if one thinks of the preceding years, in a sense, that's not an extraordinary decision. The US deployed nuclear missiles in Western Europe, you know, Britain, Turkey, Italy, uh, partly on the basis that, that this reduced the likelihood of a Soviet invasion of Western Europe. So for Khrushchev to put nuclear missiles in Cuba on the basis that, that this would reduce the chances of a US attack on Cuba was not wholly fanciful, bizarre. Uh, so he makes that decision. He is also concerned about the fact that the US has a huge nuclear lead at that time. This is something people forget sometimes. You always think of the Soviet Union as armed to the teeth. But in fact, the US had a massive lead in nuclear weapons. Uh, One used to see estimates of 17 to 1 in terms of number of nuclear warheads, or 9 to 1, but a massive lead. It wasn't until the 1970s that the Soviets had anything like parity with the US in terms of nuclear weapons. So he's concerned about that. Putting these these medium and also intermediate range nuclear missiles in Cuba meant that he had more missiles that could strike American territory. Those missiles could not strike American territory from Soviet soil. So he's concerned about Kennedy's aggression towards Cuba. He's concerned about the huge nuclear lead that the US has. So he makes that decision. The operation is carried out, this Russian operation to deploy nuclear missiles, conventional weapons, troops in Cuba, is carried out in the summer and uh, early autumn of 1962. It is called Operation Anadir. It was a highly secret operation. So uh, Anadir is a river that runs in the um, north of the Soviet Union. Um, Some of the Soviet um, military personnel who were on the ships that sent the missiles to Cuba were given skis and parkas. So they thought they were going to an Arctic location. And even the commanders of the ships that were sent with these with, with these nuclear missiles uh, and other things didn't know they were going to Cuba. They were told to head out to sea. They were just given coordinates at sea. And when they got there, they were then open an envelope which would tell them the final destination of Cuba. So it was highly secret. Um, and Kennedy, Khrushchev did make... This was an important part of Khrushchev's thinking, of the Soviet thinking, is he decided not to tell... Kennedy that he was putting missiles in Cuba. Now, the US had put missiles in Turkey, but that was public knowledge. This was publicly announced. So one of the things that Kennedy felt during the Cuban Missile Crisis and his advisors was that this is all above board, this is basically kind of benign. Why did Khrushchev do it uh, in a clandestine fashion? Um, And I suppose the answer to that is Khrushchev was concerned that if he announced it before the missile deployment was complete in Cuba, then Kennedy could take some sort of preemptive action. So that was another important decision Khrushchev made to keep the operation secret. During the autumn, Khrushchev denied that he was doing this. Uh, But of course, in mid-October 1962, US intelligence discovers that there are missiles in Cuba. One can and should criticise Khrushchev for deploying nuclear missiles in Cuba. It was uh, risky, dangerous, and I've argued this before, he didn't need to do it. If he wanted to prevent a US attack on Cuba, just deploy Russian troops. That's going to be enough to deter a US attack, because Kennedy would know that if he invades Cuba, that means fighting Russian troops, that means World War III. So he could have, Khrushchev could have deterred a US attack without... uh, 
sending nuclear missiles to Cuba, if he wanted to close the nuclear gap, why not just accelerate the development of intercontinental ballistic nuclear missiles on Soviet soil? That's exactly what the Soviets did later in the 1960s anyway. So he could have achieved his policy objectives without sending nuclear missiles to Cuba and without risking World War III. So I think one should be very critical of Khrushchev's decision to put nuclear missiles in Cuba, even if it is partially understandable given the nuclear lead the US had and Kennedy's aggression towards Castro. However, I think during the missile crisis, one has to give him credit for key decisions he made there. Respecting the blockade, not sending his ships through the blockade line with more nuclear missiles, that was important. In the second week of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the key issue was who would be the first one to actually offer a deal. So if you look at the letters between Kennedy and Khrushchev from the 22nd to the 25th of October, during the early days of the second week of the Cuban Missile Crisis, they're all the same. They basically say, you know, you're responsible for this. You know, Kennedy says, you're responsible for this, putting missiles in Cuba, you need to back down. Uh, and then Khrushchev saying, you're responsible for this. A blockade is illegal. It's an act of war. You need to back down. So the key question was, who would actually, who would be the first one to offer a settlement, and it's Khrushchev. In the letter he sends on the evening of the 26th, where he offers this deal, if you, Kennedy, John Kennedy, promised not to invade Cuba, we'll remove the missiles. So that was a key contribution. And the other key contribution Khrushchev made was, um, so the deal as it ended up was the US would promise not to invade Cuba, that would be publicly known, and would also agree to remove US Jupiter missiles from Turkey, but that would be private. That would be a secret component of the, of the crisis. Um, and Khrushchev could easily have come back and said, well, that has to be public knowledge. But he, he accepted that. So Khrushchev, you have to blame him, at least in part, to a significant, even major extent, for causing the crisis. Um, but you have to give him a lot of credit for the contribution he made to a peaceful settlement to the crisis. And actually, coming on from that, we had... Uh Kat Keary O'Connor on Twitter, who uh, wrote in to say, why did Khrushchev allow Kennedy to look like he'd had the bigger victory, uh, e.g., as you said, the US missiles removed from Turkey secretly? And then what role did the crisis play in Khrushchev's later removal from office? So with the first of those two questions, I think you have to give Khrushchev credit for this. I think the re- it's, it's, it's a good question. I, I think the reason he accepted this settlement... Uh, which did, in a sense, portray Kennedy as a winner and him as a loser, uh, was because of his genuine fear that this was spiralling out of control uh, and that World War Three was possible. The letter that he sends to Kennedy on the 26th of October, uh, in which he offers a settlement, you promise not to invade Cuba, we'll take the missiles out. It is an extraordinary letter, if you, if you read it. It's, it is so unlike normal diplomatic correspondence, which tends to be formal. It tends to be vetted. You know, several people would have been involved in writing it. If you read that letter on the 26th, um, it's very personal. It's very emotional. He talks about how he had lived through several wars and he knew that war only ended after it had sown death and destruction. Um, So... um, I think you have to say that he had he accepted that settlement because he was genuinely concerned that the crisis was spiraling out of control and that war was a possibility. In terms of 
Khrushchev's removal from power two years later, in the autumn of 1964, by a, a cabal of Russian officials that included Leonid Brezhnev. From the evidence we have, my understanding is that it was a factor that the Cuban Missile Crisis was regarded as a humiliation for the Soviet Union, that it had damaged Russia's image on the international uh, stage, that it was an example of Khrushchev's erratic leadership. But it wasn't the only factor. There were others too. There was simply the political ambition of his rivals, uh, including Brezhnev, who ousted him, the parlous state of Soviet agriculture, uh, also a factor, the fact that Soviet relations Soviet relations had deteriorated so badly with communist China. Because one of the major developments on the world stage in the 1960s is the Sino-Soviet split, that the two leading communist powers become enemies, really. So there's a range of factors uh, which influence that decision, but definitely the Cuban Missile Crisis was one of them. And then looking beyond the two superpowers, we had a couple of questions about how this played out in other countries. Um, firstly, we had uh, Idadam's Guitar and Stuff on Instagram, who wanted to know how other countries around the world responded to it. And then also we had uh, John Gilks on Instagram, who asked specifically about Britain's reaction to the crisis. So in terms of uh, Britain's reaction to the crisis, um, the British Prime Minister was Harold Macmillan, Conservative Prime Minister... He had good personal relations with John Kennedy. Um, John Kennedy was an Anglophile. He had spent time in, a lot of time, in London in the late 1930s, when he was in his early 20s, because his father, Joseph P. Kennedy, who was a self-made, very rich businessman, one of the 10 richest Americans, had been uh, appointed as the US ambassador to Britain by Franklin Roosevelt. So in the late 1930s, and JFK's father had aspirations for the US presidency. He wanted to be president uh, himself, but his time as ambassador was a disaster because he supported appeasement. Um, But the point is that John Kennedy himself spent a lot of time in Britain. He wrote his undergraduate thesis at Harvard on the on British foreign policy, on the British appeasement of Nazi Germany. That was published as a book in 1940, when he was only 23 years old, as Why England Slept. And, and John Kennedy met a lot of people uh, in Britain, in London, uh, and the kind of political class, the upper class. And so uh, he, he had a natural sort of affinity for, empathy for Britain. And he got on well with Harold Macmillan. Now, Although that may have been the case, that was the case, John Kennedy basically did did what he wanted during the Cuban Missile Crisis. He informed allies, he consulted with them, but in terms of the core decisions, he was going to make them himself. So in terms of Britain, he informed the British government, I think it was just shortly before that speech on the 22nd of October when he told the American people and the world that there were nuclear missiles in Cuba and he would be responding with the naval blockade. Shortly before that, he informed the British government. The British government uh, was also provided with photographic evidence to prove that the nuclear missiles were there. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, the main thing that happened was uh, talking by phone. Macmillan and Kennedy talked by phone uh, several times during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Macmillan was supportive. He 
urged John Kennedy to be cautious, not to be gung-ho, which was John Kennedy's mindset uh, anyway. There was a, a one striking offer, offer really, made by Macmillan during their missile crisis dialogue. When he said to Kennedy, uh, you know, if it really seems like the crisis is going to spiral out of control, you could offer to dismantle the nuclear missiles that are in Britain, the Thor missiles that are in Britain, uh, if that's going to compel Khrushchev to back down and to remove the missiles from Cuba and to end the crisis. John Kennedy wasn't uh, interested in doing that. Um, but uh, that shows McMullen's, um concern that maybe events would spiral out of control. So McMillan made that offer. An interesting point about the British dimension to all of this in terms of popular culture and society, um, this might seem tangential, but it does relate, is John, Ken- I mean, John Kennedy had this reputation in the White House as being a, a sort of intellectual, a very cultured man, a very sophisticated man. That really, He's very intelligent, uh, educated, but that really wasn't him. It was his wife who was very cultured and sophisticated. Uh, and in fact, John Kennedy's fav- favourite literature, his favourite novels were the James Bond stories. He loved the James Bond stories. And um, and he met Ian Fleming. During the 1960 campaign, he was in Washington, and the, the author of the James Bond stories, Ian Fleming, was in a car driving down a street with someone who knew Kennedy, and the car stopped. And that's when Kennedy was introduced to Ian Fleming. And Fleming was invited to dinner that night. So this extraordinary, extraordinary... Uh, event or episode during the 1960 presidential campaign where you have a presidential candidate, John Kennedy, talking to the author of James Bond and soliciting his advice on how to handle Castro. He says to Fleming, you know, how would you handle Castro? How would you get rid of him? And Fleming comes out with all of these extraordinary uh, stories or, or policy suggestions, like right out of a James Bond novel or film, um, as to how to get rid of Castro. Two months into his presidency, Kennedy is asked by a magazine to name his top 10 favourite books. One of them is uh, a James Bond book. And actually, at that point, the sales of James Bond books skyrocket. I mean, Fleming should have paid Kennedy royalties. I mean, part of the extraordinary popularity of James Bond is due to, to Kennedy's endorsement of them. What's interesting is, of course, it turns into a film franchise. What's the first film? Dr. No, with Sean Connery and Ursula Andress. And what is Dr. No about? It's about a Cold War crisis in the Caribbean with a sort of despot, Dr. No, who is uh, building uh, sort of rockets. Um, That film comes out in October 1962 in Britain. That is when the first James Bond film was released. So during the Cuban Missile Crisis, this extraordinary crisis in the Caribbean, you have it happening in, in real time politically. You also have British people going into the cinemas and watching the film Dr. No about this nuclear crisis, Cold War crisis in the Caribbean. Um, and people talk, did talk about the connection between Kennedy and Bond, that Kennedy was a big fan and he no doubt would watch the film. Um, so that was the, the British angle. In terms of the, the rest of the international community, it tended to fall along the lines of the Cold War. So obviously Soviet allies would be supportive of the Soviet Union, Western powers would be supportive of uh, the United States. 
Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It seems incredible, but that is what Castro said to Khrushchev. If Kennedy invades, you must start a nuclear war. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling? The freedom? How the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time. Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One. For the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Now we've maybe touched on some of this already, but another popular search query is what were the consequences of the Cuban Missile Crisis? They were ambiguous, but on the whole positive. So in terms of the positive, I do think that the Cuban Missile Crisis changes Kennedy and uh, and possibly Khrushchev as well. It does leave them with a deep-seated fear of nuclear war. Uh, Richard Goodwin, who was an advisor to JFK, uh, says that a little while after the Cuban Missile Crisis, he was speaking to John Kennedy, and Kennedy said to uh, Goodwin, you know, it's it's crazy that, you know, myself and one other guy in the rest of the world have the capacity to destroy the whole of Western civilization. It definitely deepens his concerns about the dangers of the nuclear age, the Cold War spiralling out of control. And, you know, if you look at Kennedy's foreign policy in general, and if actually if you look at his views on foreign policy before his presidency, they are pretty hard line. Um, the, the key element in his foreign policy ideology throughout his political career, the 1960 presidential campaign, 
was the importance of high levels of military spending. He thought that the 1930s, the failures of appeasement showed that you must be strong militarily. That's why he carries out a big military build-up when he becomes president. And also, stand up, be tough with aggressive totalitarian dictators. The 1930s had shown that, he believed, and he now needed to also show resolve, a steely resolve in dealing with the Soviets. And if you look at the early part of his presidency, what do you have? Big military build-up. Uh, you have a, uh, a concerted effort to get rid of Fidel Castro. You have escalation in Vietnam. After the Cuban Missile Crisis, he becomes determined to reduce Cold War tensions. And Khrushchev is sympathetic to that point of view. So what do you have in 1963? You have the establishment of a hotline between the Kremlin and the White House, facilitating immediate communication between the two during any sort of crisis, because you hadn't, you hadn't had that during the Cuban Missile Crisis. They'd corresponded by, by letter, essentially, by written messages. This would allow immediate communication. Um, you also have, on the 10th of June, 1963, this extraordinary speech given by John Kennedy at American University in Washington, D.C. It's one of the most remarkable speeches of the Cold War, Khrushchev described it as the greatest speech by an American president since the days of Franklin Roosevelt. In the speech, this president, who ha- had ha- carbed hardline views on the Cold War early in his presidency, in, the, in this American University speech, he urges the American people to change their attitude towards the Cold War, towards the Soviet Union, and towards the Russian people. And he said, you know, no political system can be regarded as so iniquitous, so evil, that its people must be seen as lacking in virtue. And he, he commended the Russians for their contrib- the Russian people for their contribution to victory in World War II and also their achievements in the realms of science and space. And he urged the American people to change their attitude. And this paved the way for the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty of 1963, which limited nuclear testing. It was the first such agreement in the history of the Cold War. One of the ways in which I like to think of the Kennedy presidency is in terms of change. Uh, that, that, that The presidency constitutes a sort of political education for Kennedy. I mean, we're all affected by what happens to us in our lives. I think it's reasonable to assume presidents are the same, or they should be, that they should, that they should take on board the experiences they have. And I think the Cuban Missile Crisis changes Kennedy, and it intensifies amplifies his fear that there might be a third world war, a nuclear war, and hence you have the American University speech, the Test Ban Treaty. And, you know, by the autumn of 1963, just shortly before his assassination, he's talking about other areas of collaboration with the Soviets, maybe on increased trade, maybe a collaborative moon project. He talks about that. So the Cuban Missile Crisis serves to reduce Cold War tensions. But there's one other point that needs to be made, which is at the same time, the consensus that developed in the Soviet leadership in the mid and late 1960s was that they must never suffer humiliation like this again. And the feeling was that this humiliation was due to US strategic advantage. The fact that the US had a huge lead in nuclear weapons was why the US prevailed in the Cuban Missile Crisis. So 
You, what you also have is the Soviet Union embarking on a huge military buildup in the mid and late 1960s, so that by the 1970s, for the first time in the Cold War, the Soviets do, roughly speaking, have parity with the US in, in nuclear war, so in, in nuclear weapons. So it reduces Cold War tensions, the missile crisis, in effect, during the final year of John Kennedy's life, but in the long term, it also accelerates the arms race. So the legacy of the Cuban Missile Crisis is ambiguous. And what did it mean for the island of Cuba itself and Castro's regime? It is interesting to consider the Cuban dimension. Again, that's a really good question because people, historians, even though it's called the Cuban Missile Crisis, it was generally portrayed as a Soviet-American event and the focus was on Moscow and Washington. But um, in the 1990s, scholars began to argue, well, no, no, you've got to think of it as triangular a Soviet dimension, American dimension, and a Cuban dimension. And I think, indeed, that is a sound point of view. Um, Most of the core decisions, key decisions, are made in Washington and Moscow. But Castro is a really important player in all of this. Firstly, the Cuban Missile Crisis could never have happened unless Castro had agreed to accept Soviet missiles in Cuba. It was not a case of Khrushchev deciding to deploy nuclear missiles in Cuba and then just telling Castro. He had to ask Castro's permission. And Castro could have said no. And Castro has given different explanations as to why he accepted the missiles. But I think the most plausible is that he accepted the missiles in order to deter a US invasion. He thought it would bolster his regime, increase the regime's security by preventing a US attack. So that was a key decision he made. There's one other um, moment in this whole story when he's, uh, I mean, there are others as well, but there's one that particularly comes to mind when he's very important, which is right at the height of the crisis, um, seems to be the early hours of the 27th of October, that he writes this extraordinary letter. And I can remember when this was released, which was during the 1990s, and people were staggered when they found out what Castro had written in this letter to Khrushchev at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis. What Castro said in this letter was that he thought US military action against Cuba was now imminent. This is towards the end of the second week of the crisis. He said to Khrushchev, well, it might well be an airstrike, a US airstrike, but it's possible it could be a US invasion, a direct US invasion of the island. Now, if it is a US invasion of the island, I want you to respond by carrying out a nuclear attack. It seems incredible, but that is what Castro said to Khrushchev. If Kennedy invades, you must start a nuclear war. I think the general assumption is that this increased Khrushchev's sense that the crisis was spiralling out of control and um, that he better bring about a peaceful settlement to the crisis quickly. Uh, As for the ending of the crisis, Castro was furious. He was absolutely enraged. We have an account of this. He basically felt that he'd been betrayed by Khrushchev, that Khrushchev had been weak. He basically saw it as humiliation. So in terms of how, uh, you know, the Cuban leadership responded, how Castro uh, responded, it was with unrestrained uh, fury, rage, and a sense of uh, sen- a sense of humiliation, and just in a practical sense, Castro did think. 
I mean, the early part of his government, he was concerned that the US was going to overthrow him and his rule of Cuba would prove to be ephemeral, a short-lived. Um, once the missiles were deployed, that increased Castro's sense that his regime was secure. So the removal of the nuclear missiles, I think, increased his sense of vulnerability. Uh, a popular internet search question was, um, who, if anyone, won the Cuban Missile Crisis? The general perception at the time was that the US had won the Cuban Missile Crisis. Kennedy's public approval ratings in the US went sky high after the Cuban Missile Crisis. The perception was that he'd handled it uh, very well. He always did have very high approval ratings, exceptionally high if you compare him to other modern uh, presidents. It's actually a complicated issue. For example, you could argue it the other way. The whole basis of Kennedy's policy towards Cuba before the missile crisis was to overthrow Castro. That was, I mean, even after the Bay of Pigs invasion, there's a National Security Council meeting on the 5th of May, 1961, where John Kennedy is setting out his aims in terms of policy towards Cuba for the future. And he, and he, he defines the removal of Castro as the central objective. Then he tries to carry that out with Operation Mongoose, this top-secret CIA operation to overthrow Castro. One thing that's also worth noting, an extraordinary part of the story, is, um, I'm just moving ahead here, but I'll, I'll come back to, uh, to the main point. In 1975, the US Senate carried out an investigation. A committee in the US Senate carried out an investigation into alleged assassination attempts by the CIA against various foreign leaders including Castro. What that investigation established was that at least eight assassination plots had been devised by the CIA to kill Castro, many of them during the Kennedy years. Now, we're not certain, absolutely certain, that presidents, including Kennedy, knew about them, or was it the CIA doing it on its own initiative? And this is because of a practice known as plausible deniability. If a president was briefed about an assassination attempt, this was never written down so that the president's knowledge was plausibly deniable. Uh, but without going into the detail of it, I think the evidence strongly suggests that Kennedy knew about the assassination attempts against Castro and approved of them. He saw them as a way of achieving his policy objective. So the fundamental objective of Kennedy's policy towards Castro was to get rid of him. So at the end of the Cuban Missile Crisis, when Kennedy promises never to invade Cuba in the future, you, you can see, see that as the Soviets achieving their basic objective, which was to secure the Castro regime, to make sure that uh, Castro stayed in power, and compelling Kennedy to jettison, to give up on his basic policy, which was trying to overthrow Castro. So you can portray it as... Uh, as, at least to some extent, a success for the Soviet Union. And also, the removal of missiles from Turkey, the removal of US Jupiter missiles from Turkey, you can see that as equivalent to the Soviets removing their missiles from Cuba. So you can interpret it in that way. However, Khrushchev had wanted to put nuclear missiles in Cuba. He did install nuclear missiles in Cuba. And the, the pressure from the US blockade and also the threat of further US military action forced Khrushchev to back down. That was humiliating, and that was perceived as a success, as a, as a major success for Kennedy as president. 
Uh, and I think that's basically a sound view. That was Mark White. His book, Missiles in Cuba, is available now from many bookshops. If you found today's podcast interesting, then please do drop us a line with ideas of topics or historians you'd like us to include in this series. You can do that on our social media channels at History Extra. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow when Shushma Malik will be talking about the Roman Emperor Nero. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.